Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 14th, 2022. Joining me for today's podcast are my regulars, Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, U.S. News, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other publications. John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. And Rob Pecorero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and USA Today. Gentlemen, how are each of you doing? Good. You know, when I ask that question, that's, I'm supposed to get a really energetic... Um, it's good to be alive. Yes, I'm as great as great can be. Well, I'm sure the energy level will pick up when we get into some of our, uh, our topics. Yeah, John, you're like a cougar. You're ready to recoil, you know, onto, uh, onto, onto uh, some of the topics we're going to talk about. But let's uh, bring up our first one. This will, be a, uh, this will be a delightful topic for us to talk about here. You know, I'm not going to say no surprise. I'm sure some of you guys are going to say yeah, I called it, but uh, apparently Elon, not apparently, Elon Musk is trying to walk away from his plan to acquire Twitter. Um, uh, of course, uh, Twitter has now sued him um, in the state of Delaware, which is a very business-friendly um, uh, place to uh, sue companies because most, almost all the corporations in America are incorporated in Delaware. But it will be an interesting situation to see if um, Twitter can compel... <laughs> Uh, Elon to buy t- uh, Twitter rather than just buy the uh, breakup fee of about a billion dollars. But uh, let's get into this right off the bat. What do you think, uh, Stuart? Let me start with you and get your, I'm sure, very enthusiastic views on the topic. I'm shocked, shocked to find that Elon Musk doesn't want to buy Twitter. We've been talking about this for weeks, and all of us agree that this was a horrible idea. And once he actually got into this, he would want no part of it. But the other side of this is, if he doesn't want to buy, why is Twitter trying to force him to do so? I'm, I mean, you want to put a guy in charge of a company who doesn't want to be in charge of the company? And so this whole this this whole thing is just so stupid. Except that there's so much money involved. So it, I, I, you you want to hope that justice is done, but. If I were Twitter, I would just try to collect some money from him and then find somebody else to buy. Well, honestly, you know, I'll just jump in before I ask um, uh, Rob for his reaction to this, is that there's a lot of good reasons for why Twitter wants this to happen from a shareholder standpoint, because, you know, the, the, it is not a very profitable company. The company has been well, losing plus, money. Plus the, the offer that he made is, what, uh, 30% over the market price? So, I mean, the market price is, what, $36, and he's paying them 54 bucks a share? So, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But Well, if you're a starving man and you can't get a hold of uh, filet mignon, you know, tuna fish looks pretty good. So uh, that would be my sophisticated uh, – <laughs> shareholder response to that uh rob what do you say what is your thought on the, on the elon musk saga yeah so i i finally got around to reading the entirety of the lawsuit twitter filed and uh the proceeding is an amusing read which i don't usually say about <laughs> legal filings uh certainly the only lawsuit i have ever read that includes screenshots of tweets with poop emoji uh it, yeah it basically amounts to elon musk is completely out of his depth, has no clue what he's doing, 
is materially unqualified and unfit to run this company and we want to make him buy the company anyways. I think obviously what's going to happen at some point is he's going to have to write an enormous check much bigger than $1 billion to make this whole thing go away because, yeah, you know, what is he doing? Like uh, somewhere uh, th there's got to be some emails from whatever lawyer has been trying to get along to actually not act like a complete idiot uh, because yeah, he's, asking for the SEC to help. The SEC has sanctioned him. The SEC is not in the mood for his nonsense. Uh, he is, you know, placing demands that are nowhere in the merger agreement. And he's trying to make this happen. You know, Delaware courts, my understanding is that state got to be what it is. The whole business-friendly climate is a deal is a deal. And certainly one negotiated and agreed upon by lawyers. So completely stupid move by Elon Musk, which... I hope at some point he steps back and realizes, yeah, there are limits to what I know. And maybe I should listen to the experts before deciding that something is possible when everyone is telling me it's not possible. You know, corporate mergers are not, in fact, rocket science. They can be worse if you screw them up this badly. Uh, but, John, let me ask you a question. And again, I don't want to take Elon Musk's side because that's what you guys will accuse me of. But. Does Twitter really want to go through the discovery process in this lawsuit? Because, I mean, he's alleging that they've misrepresent, um, underrepresented the, the bots issue, the, the subscriber issue. They, you know, that for years, you know, they've been uh, publicly reporting uh, that they have a handle on the number. That number was communicated um, as part of the uh, due diligence with the, um, with the sale. And Elon Musk is essentially saying, you know what, whatever formula you're using, whatever spreadsheet you're using that's lurking around, that number is way, way, way um, under uh, underrepresented. So, does, so I guess my question is to you, John, you think this backfires on Twitter if this goes to a uh, goes to litigation and all of a sudden there's a lot of discovery that maybe Twitter does not want to see, you know, unveiled. John. I don't I don't think so. I mean, this this was done as is. So that issue isn't even relevant. If you look at the original signing, it's not even relevant. It's not it's not in there. He can't raise it. Not an issue. And also, it's sort of like, what's all this I hear about bots on the Internet? It's like, Where have you been? Right. Anybody's in social media. And, and, and Elon Musk being one of the biggest generators of bots on the Internet. Come on, right? So it, it's pretty silly. That's not going to fly. It's not part of the original arrangement. There's probably no legal basis for it. And anybody who's anybody, that's not an issue. So it, it's like really expensive for him. Um, he re realized, gee, I really don't know anything about this. And I'm not going to be able to bring back Donald Trump. That's like, what do I do? I don't want it anymore. And that's sort of what happened. And I, also, I told you so. I did. <laughs> we all <Right>. did. <laughs> well, Musk is approaching this thing like a ten-year-old. I was the one who said Portland springs to mind. I mean, I, I think the interesting point, well, I think you made a couple of minutes ago, is that you know, does Elon Musk, you know, start to get a lot of scrutiny if he's not getting it already from the um, SEC and the potentially the Justice Department in terms of manipulating things you know he has a history of of making you know material statements about company his own company you know other companies that he's had uh, involvement in certainly twitter has been yeah, part of this private financing confirmed it for yeah. $20 a share yeah. what a jackass well <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm, glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad the three of you have such moderate opinions on the uh, on, on the topic. But you know, I, we'll be talking about this again because I'm sure that I, my, you know my guess is just to put a bow on this. My guess is at some point he does have a, a, a business orientation. Maybe with this particular deal, he didn't know what he was getting into. But at some point, his accountant or his financial uh, uh, advisor will say, you know, Elon, you got now you're in a situation, you got to figure out what's the cheapest way to get out of this, you know, and he uh, needs a conciliary to tell him to. Yeah. <laughs> Robert DeVall's still alive. Maybe he can uh, you know, get the job for that. Let's, let's hit the uh, next topic here. And this one, you know, I really do want to hit this pretty hard because it speaks to a lot of different things. You know, Jonathan Ivey, the you know legendary, iconic designer at Apple, has been with the company for 27 years. The last few years, he's been kind of, on, you know, since Tim Cook um, uh, came in to uh, take the reins uh, from Steve Jobs. He's had kind of a consulting agreement. Um, and there's been a lot of reports that, um, that you know, Ivey, you know, has probably, has not liked, you know, maybe... I won't say he has, he dislikes uh, a Cook. I, I can't I can't opine on that. But the fact that you know Apple has become much more operational as a company since took uh, since Cook came in, and you know the importance of design, the importance of aesthetics, you know the importance of doing breakthrough things from a design standpoint may not be getting the same priority level that it did when um, Jobs had the reign. So. Uh, John, let me start with you. Your uh, thoughts on Ivy leaving and maybe what his, his uh, impact uh, on the company was. You know, it's John. interesting from a design and a point of view. Do you think it's time that, you know, it, it may be over? Those those iconic designs have been great, but they kind of look a little dated to me now. And I'm, I think it is sort of time for some new blood and some new designs to come out and some different kind of products that will be the future, not just like a rectangular smartphone anymore. Um, so I'm this long. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of us like, there's all have, have a relationship. <laughs> you know, we were kind of surprised. <laughs> so I, I think it's a good thing. I think they, they need to can move on and get some new blood in there and some new products out there. So the new blood argument is John's, um, John's message here. Rob, what are you, what's your thinking? You know, I guess number one, it means people at Apple no longer have to pronounce a certain metal as aluminum. Uh, number two, you know, I kind of soured on Johnny, Johnny Ive at, at a certain point because he had this purest approach to design, which led to things like the butterfly keyboard that broke if it got a speck of dust into it. Um, <laughs> getting rid of the headphone jack, I kind of blame that on him. Uh, and, I've, you know, I've started seeing when I spent, to return to Elon Musk for a second, when I spent a week driving a Tesla Model 3, I started thinking that this car feels like something Johnny Ive would design, given that, you know, buttons are minimized such that you have to use a touchscreen to adjust the angle of mirrors. The fact that you can only, uh, there's only one, the RFID card you tap to unlock and unlock the, the car that only works on the driver's side B-pillar, not the passenger side. So you, if you don't have the app, which you can't do if you're running a Tesla from Hertz, you have to walk around the car all the time to unlock it. Uh, you know, the whole thing that we, we must simplify things so much to the point that they become questionably usable. And so, yeah, you know, I don't think this is going to hurt Apple. Uh, I think he was had some great work, but, you know, 
the other thing I remember is seeing him talk. He did an appearance at uh, the Hersher Museum at, in D.C. in like 2017 talking about Apple Park. And mm -hmm. I, I wound up cheating off on it in a piece for the Washington Post because he was going on and on about, we made this for us, not for you. And, you know, these things that the doors that have a completely flat threshold so engineers have to break their stride. And at the same time, it was the, the, in the middle of a really long pattern of bad software releases and glitches and disruptions. And my, my gripe as an Apple user was, why can't Apple make its devices with the same care it's devoting to its spaceship circular headquarters? Uh, and, you know, Apple is doing better at the software thing these days. But, yeah. But, you know, you know what? And I want to get Stuart's reaction to this. The interesting thing about the IV uh, administration, so to speak, in terms of its influence on products, is that it has contributed to Apple's um, uh, belief that you can only design cool-looking products that can't be upgraded. And if you look at a notebook mm -hmm. today, a MacBook, it's largely upgradable. Operationally, they solder the memory down. They even solder the storage down, which you know drives me crazy. And they have always done that under the guise of, well, if we eliminate screws, which, by the way, is limit up eliminates upgrades, that allows us to make more contour designs. We don't want to see we don't want to see lines at all. And and I and I have to tell you, I I my, personally, because it's been one of my pet peeves with Apple is I'd like to be able to upgrade my notebook over time after I bought it. And and and, and by the way, Dell has proven, HP has proven, Dell's new XPS 12, uh, XPS 13 Plus, which I just got, is a beautiful, beautiful product. And believe it or not, you can upgrade it. You know, you can take the screws out of the back, maybe take, you know, you need a, a, a T6 torque screwdriver, but it took me about 10 minutes and I was able to upgrade the uh, storage very, very quickly. So my point is you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater from a design standpoint. Stuart, your thoughts on this topic? Well, a couple of things. First on the upgrade bit, that might not have been Ivy's decision. That may have been a corporate decision to disallow upgrades because they want to sell you an upgraded product. Yeah, and, old product. Yeah. and they also want to buy you a new product if your old product can't be upgraded and you need it to be upgraded. So that might not be an industrial design um, decision. That may be a corporate decision that made it at a higher level. Uh, overall, though, I thought Ivy had been separated from him a long time, like you had said. I, I didn't realize. I thought that he and Cook had been at loggerheads a long time ago and that his influence had, had left. But overall, industrial design in consumer electronics products are sort of like the umpires of the consumer electronics industry in that you really only notice it if you really screw it up. It's the very rare industrial design that you point at and go, boy, that's a brilliant product and it, and it functions really well. So I want to use this opportunity, since we're talking about industrial design and technology, to call out possibly the most influential um, industrial designer in consumer technology history, Rudy Krollup. Rudy Krollup was the industrial engineer for Motorola, designed the first cell phone, the first flip phone, and designed the first clamshell phone, the StarTac. Um, and those designs, far more than anything Ivy has ever done, has been the hugest influence, I think, in technology um, before or since, and simply as a singular individual contribution to consumer technology industrial design. Well, I, I guess, you know, the, 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 uh, the epilogue here is that, you know, I think Ivy will be missed at Apple. You know, I, I do think that there are people that, you know, still admire him quite a bit. He did bring a lot of, of, of folks into it.
But I think, you know, John and, and Rob, your point is there is always a time when new blood has to come into the organization to get there. Because if you if you do, I think, you know, John, you made a good point. If you do look at designs of Apple in the early 2000s, the original version of the iPod, it does look, you know, you, you, you take a look at it. It's the same reaction that I have is when I look at a car design from the 1950s. You know, back in 1950, it was uh, a Edsel probably was really good looking. But you look back on the 50 years saying, what were they thinking when they designed that? So, you know, you know, you know, people change, cultures change, eras change. And it may be that kind of time to um, uh, for Apple to move on. But and by the way, it also releases um, uh, Jonathan Ivey to work with other companies because I'm sure he had many, many non-compete uh, components to his relate his consulting agreement. So as he sent in his resume to Tesla. <laughs> okay let's get to the next topic here um this is a really a good topic and i know you you're just chomping into bit to talk about this Stuart. but is traditional network tv suffering a slow death you know you know you've got i, I wrote a piece of a newsletter a piece of my newsletter about netflix and how the disruptor is being disrupted from a, you know they invented binge watching and now it seems to be binge watching it's kind of falling out of favor but Stuart, let me get your reaction to this. And is the the, the, the traditional way we, we consume television, is it pretty much over? Well, I mean, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about the January 6th hearings and whether or not the TV being the electronic heart that it had been during the Watergate era. And I think um, the, the recent Emmy Award nominee, nominations have sort of confirmed that to a certain extent in that only Abbott Elementary was amongst any of the drama or comedy nominees for best in their categories, and only a couple of actors, uh, Danny Glover from it, uh, from Atlanta, and I know I'm missing somebody obvious, but there are very few. The only broadcast network show that got any recognition in the fiction side was Abbott Elementary. Almost all the other network television nominations have come in competition or reality shows and talk shows. And so I think that there's been a very, very slow transition for network television, which unfortunately or fortunately, probably unfortunately, still relying on the fiction, on, on hour-long dramas and half-hour sitcoms, that it simply cannot compete with the streaming networks who have the freedom to produce shows with far more adult topics, far more um, realistic language and plot lines. That, that network television, which has to, uh, which has to um, um, be attracted to a more mainstream audience, can't afford to do. Um, and so they've been shifting slowly but surely to the reality side, talk shows. What I really would love to see them do is to bring back the variety show. Let's bring back vaudeville because that's not something that streaming is certainly going to do. But it, it's sports, it's news, it's talk, it's reality. I think that is probably going to be the future for broadcast television because I just don't see them competing on a fictional basis with streamers or even or even pay cable. Well, I mean, to that point, Stuart, the only, I think, innovation, and it's not really innovation because it was done in the 50s and 60s, is that the live um, uh, Broadway musicals now, the networks have jumped on that. You know, so you've seen live versions of yep. The Sound of Music. They don't do it enough. They do it like once a year. And yeah, I on, think on Christmas. Off doing it more often. Which is, a tr which is unbelievable because the audiences have been uh, humongous, frankly, yep. you know. 
And and God knows there's enough material out there because there's a lot of Broadway shows. The, the film versions were off. And revivals. They, they're not just stuck on current shows. So, yeah, they've been doing, know. you know, Jesus Christ Superstar and the music stuff that is in the catalog that a lot of a lot of people in America would will never see in any other way. That's exactly right. And by the way, it also gives exposure to fil Hollywood and film stars who generally would not do um, a, sh a live show on Broadway because they just can't, they can't be paid what they can get in Hollywood versus, you know, doing a show eight times a week in New York. But, uh, but I agree with you. There hasn't been a lot of, other than that, I really can't think, you know, where traditional network television is still um, relevant, you know, live, live news, live local news, weather, local mm -hmm. events, it still has relevance there, but um you know, it can't pursue the binge model. Obviously, is not within reach of of, of the major networks, and uh, it's going to be interesting. Rob, Rob, what's your reaction? Yeah, I mean, the whole notion of the bundle model of selling TV is is spending other people's money, and the problem is, in this case, the other people noticed what they're getting for their money, and they're not happy with it. And, and so, <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it, it does mean there's a lot more sites you've got to go to. There are things that haven't been worked out yet. Regional sport net, sports networks being the big one where, you know, now a whole five of them have direct customer off, offers and local fans of the other 25 baseball teams are out of luck. And they're just going to have to figure out, you know, their own thing or just uh, listen on the radio. That's my advice. Or cutting. John? Fans, <laughs> yeah. Well, full full disclosure. So I, I, I worked for CBS for 17 years um, in, you know, news and the overnight news. So I'm a little partial to, you know, broadcast news. But I mean, it, it was a slow decline. We went from a four hour show that was live with two anchors and a full crew and everything to by the time we closed down about 17 years later, we had one anchor. We did one hour live and then we repeated it over and over and over again through the night. You know, definitely reduction in facilities and budgets and things like that. However, all that said, they are killing it in news. I mean, they're not only barely surviving, like look at the people that have tried to do digital streaming news. Fail, 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 right? So, um, you know, CNN being, you know, the one recent one. So broadcast news still wins there. Sporting events, I'm not convinced. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not a baseball fan, but I am a tennis fan and Formula One and FNL. You know, I'm not going to buy separate packages for each of those. I'm already paying for Hulu and Disney and Netflix and I, ah, you know, <laughs> it's driving me crazy. So, uh, yeah, I don't I, I think it has been a slow decline for some things. But to Stuart's point, they need to find this new thing. And whether that's a variety show or the real more of the reality shows that they hit on some formula, you know, there's there's probably some 22 year old out there that's going to hit on that right new formula for TV and just boom, it's going to be a thing. But um, they definitely way past the heyday, that's for sure. But, but you know, it's interesting before we go into the next topic is that because you, you just struck something with me, uh, John, that just I have to uh, get off my chest is that, you know, tr traditional TV, the traditional networks, you know, when something tragic has happened in this country, you know, the, the, uh, the TV is really, live TV is really the only way to unite the country, whether it was through 9-11, where there was nonstop coverage, where, you know, uh, you know, essentially it was pulling people together that was in disparate parts of the country that wanted to know what was going on in New York during those tragic days. The Kennedy assassination, you know, people still remember the nonstop. That really invented the whole live 
nonstop coverage with with Walter Cronkite and his ability to and, and the other uh, and the other network anchors at the time on ABC and NBC. But it still has that that consequential value with live events when something happens. You know, I mean, yeah, some people will turn to the cable networks. Yeah. A lot of people will turn to the cable, but they'll still turn. Many of them will still turn to the major networks for their information to unite the country. So I think that's. A, I hope that um, that stays true. Well, I, I think of the cable networks as broadcast news. I mean, they're not broadcasting strictly speaking, but they have a path on the regular things, the traditional way that we would do that too. But absolutely, I was sitting in the studio when TWA Flight 800 crashed you know, blew up in the air. And then we went and changed everything that we were doing to, I featured the poor kids that were in that French class. I'll never forget them on that plane. And, uh, you know, Heaven's Gate and things like that, where we were live on the air that I remember doing. Absolutely. So, and I think you're right. That's still the case. If something happens here in New York, I, I switch on the news and I go to one of the channels and I start flicking through to see what happens. Yeah. I don't, I don't check out what's online because by the time Google News posts it, it'll be over. Yeah. So. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Let us hit our last topic here. And that is, and I, John, I know you're chomping the bit to talk about this. There was some, uh, I won't mention <laughs> who, who the publication was, unless you want to bring yeah. them up. But there was an interesting article about that the future of cars has this looming subscription nightmare coming. And I, John, I want to get your view on this because you're a resident uh, car guy who knows quite a bit about the topic. But I will say, as a new car buyer, relatively new. I got a brand new Audi about five or six months ago. You know, I, I, I cannot tell you the number of emails that I've gotten that is asking me to extend my subscription with the built-in Wi-Fi capability, which by the way, is not cheap. I think they want three, $400 a year, you know, for that. And I'm already, you know, subscribing to a serious, you know, a satellite television, uh, radio that's got me on um, a number of other subscriptions that I access through Apple CarPlay on on the um, on my uh, on my iPhone device, and I guess the question is is that from a, a car future standpoint, is really going to be all of a sudden now the car is going to be your next iPhone with a bunch of applications that you have to pay for on a monthly basis, or um, is it going to become you know hey I got to spend a thousand dollars a year just to drive my car? Right. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, so there are a couple of things. I mean, the, the, the outlet that, that did this is kind of notorious for being inaccurate about technology. Pretty much any story, you're going to find things that are inaccurate. Um, and there was a goofy little thing that a company tried and Mercedes, I think, tried to get people to subscribe in Korea to a service. And that's what it's all based on. But look, all the cars of the future need to be connected. And there is no way that you're going to be able to drive a car that isn't connected. And they're not going to subscribe to that. That's just automatic. So, you know, in terms of safety features and maps and navigation, it absolutely needs to know where it is to do all those things. So that's just not going to be a subscription. The other element is the smartphone that you just alluded to, right? I've got it on my dash. I'm using Waze. I don't need what they have in the head unit in the car. I don't actually need any of their traffic data. Mine is much more accurate much more up to date in the minute. And so those two factors are colliding. Um, we talk a lot about what was called the e-horizon, which is that connected car knowing what is happening in cars down the road. All that is coming and it's starting to happen now. You can't pay a subscription for that. That is just going to be automatic. So John, you don't believe that at some point there will be services in the car that unless you pay a subscription for, 
you know, I mean, getting great um, connectivity uh, access is not a problem today with 5G uh, enabled phones. It's just right. as good as, as Wi-Fi, depending on where you are, live, of course. But do you think that the car manufacturers will say you cannot utilize this feature in the car unless you subscribe to our Wi-Fi in the car and by definition, our, our Internet service uh, that we've built into the, into the car? You think that might happen? I think that there, when when you get to you know a, more autonomous vehicles or even like highway autonomy where you're spending an hour where you don't really need to pay attention to what's going on, um, then there might be subscription services like Sirius XM, you know. Uh, but look, I don't, I didn't up my Sirius XM subscription. I mean, it lasted three years in the car and then it was like bye bye, you know. Uh, there may be. <laughs> Things like Netflix or, or something like that. But again, with that smartphone in the car and, and the, the 5G service and the kids in the backseat don't care. They're watching their own phones and they're watching right. stuff on there. There's no way that Ford is going to make you pay for that. Um, so, I mean, it, it's it's just a cute little idea, but it's it hasn't done very well. And if you look at churn on these things, too, people don't keep on star. You know, they don't keep serious FM. Right. They let them go. Now, now, Stuart, let me get your reaction because <laughs> you're probably the wrong person to ask because you don't drive a lot <laughs> in New York. But if you kind of play this out to where cars will be going, because self-driving cars are going to happen. Again, we can argue about when it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Does the car become a, a rolling advertising device where, hey, I've agreed to watch ads. And by the way, the advertising is paying for some of these services. If I'm willing to, you know, watch... A bunch of ads and watch a bunch of co content um, for free. You know that advertising uh, revenue offsets some of the uh, the fees that might be required to provide that content. Do you, do you see a future where that may happen? This is a question, and I think this entire topic runs along the line of: Can I predict who's going to win the pennant in twenty twenty five? There are so many possibilities and i as a technology historian i hate to say never say never if you would ask me when i was 20 years old whether or not airlines would ever charge me to check bags which they have to do i would have said why would they do that now the car market is completely different you really need to to have these charges that everybody has to play along and unlike the airline industry which is where you have to check bags essentially and essentially they'll charge you for for bring, carrying on um the car market has way too many players in order for the entire industry to set any kind of baseline for any of these services i think the kinds of services that they could that they might try to do is not the kind of add-ons like netflix or csxm but heated seats you know, um, you know, whether or not the rear view camera works, you know, stuff that it, the same thing that the airlines are doing with checked in luggage, they're going to charge you things, things you absolutely need, as opposed to things that you want. That's the only way that they would be able to get away with this. And the only way to get away with it is that if everybody plays along. So there's certainly going to be subscription services in cars like Netflix and, and advertising once the vehicles become completely autonomous. But we're talking 20 years from now. There is no way that within my lifetime that I'm going to be in, in a fully autonomous vehicle, except as a test. And I hope to God that I never have to buy a car for the rest of my life. So... Um, <sighs> Uh, I, I I never want to say never because the strangest things have happened in technology history, like pay television. 
Um, so, I mean, anything is possible. The greed of American corporations should never be discounted. I just don't think it's anything that I'm going to need to worry about or even you're going to need to worry about for some time. It may come in dribs and drabs like the boiling frog, but I don't think it's going to be anything major. There's simply too many car makers, too many used cars on the market where you won't have to do this. I just think there's too many people who won't need it or don't have to do it to make it a, a universal or an industry-wide uh, trend. Rob, take us home on this. I'm so glad you used the phrase 20 years from now. It's one thing if you're going to charge a subscription for an ongoing service, something that is being provided day by day, but to turn something that you own into something that you rent What's going to happen at some point is the server that regulates whatever DRM governs, sorry, digital rights management, uh, governs the seat warmers or whatever is going to be decommissioned. And then you won't be able to use that part, even though the hardware is there and it works perfectly fine. Although presumably at that point, you'll be able to, uh, you know, take your car. Hopefully your, your local uh, mechanic also has a white hat hacker on staff at that point who can <laughs> unlock the feature for you. Uh, yeah. You know, obviously there are things that are provided as, as a service and, you know, you can justify paying for on a monthly or yearly basis. And other things, no, they're, they're, they're part of the car and you shouldn't be paying to rent them. This is something you hopefully you pay for once and then keep for a, a good long time. And uh, I would caution automakers tempted to do the car as a service. Costs, is that a thing? I don't think no one's yet made that work. And I don't see how people will, unless of course you count taxis. Well, I knew that was going to be a spirited discussion and uh, we'll see. We'll come back when we do this, when we do this podcast in uh, 2042. We'll see how long or right we are, but guys, listen, thank you for taking the time to join me for today's podcast for a viewing and listening audience. Uh, thanks for making the smart tech check podcast part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe button buttons at the end of today's podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vina Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week. And thank you guys again. Mm -hmm.